We're listening to saxophonist, composer, arranger, educator, and jazz master, Jimmy Heath. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Jimmy Heath has long been recognized as a fluid, innovative instrumentalist and a dynamic composer and arranger. Jimmy is one of the legendary Heath brothers. Percy Heath, a jazz master as well, played the bass. Tootie Heath is a drummer. Starting on the alto sax and acquiring the nickname Little Bird due to the influence Charlie Parker had on him, Jimmy switched to tenor sax in the 1950s. But as a tenor or an alto player, Jimmy Heath excelled and he has shared the stage with the legends of jazz. There are far too many to list here, but here are a few facts. In 1948, Jimmy performed in the first International Jazz Festival in Paris with Howard McGee, sharing the stage with Coleman Hawkins and Errol Garner. One of Jimmy's earliest big bands in Philadelphia included John Coltrane and Benny Golson. Jimmy played in Dizzy Gillespie's big band for a few years after which he teamed up first with Miles Davis and then with Milt Jackson and Art Farmer. During his career, Jimmy Heath has performed on more than 100 albums, including seven with the Heath Brothers and 12 as a band leader. He's also written more than 100 original works, including seven suites and two string quartets. Jimmy helped to create the jazz program at Queens College, where he also taught for 20 years. Little wonder that this week, New York's Mayor Michael Bloomberg gave Jimmy Heath a 2011 Mayor's Award for Arts and Culture. Other honorees this year included Stephen Sondheim, Maya Lin, and Mikhail Baryshnikov. Of course, the NEA has New York City beat. We named Jimmy Heath an NEA Jazz Master back in 2003. I had the opportunity to speak with Jimmy at the 2011 Jazz Master Ceremony. I began our conversation by asking him why he chose the saxophone as his instrument. Well, you know, in my family, my father was a clarinetist on weekends when he auto mechanic for livelihood, but he played the clarinet and my mom sang in the Baptist church. And they had a lot of music in the house, and so every child was often an instrument of their choice. That was the way they thought life should be. My sister uh, played piano until she met boys and she stopped. Uh, my brother Percy was older, he played the violin, went in the service, became a Tuskegee Airman, second lieutenant. When he came out, I was already a professional because my father had offered me the instrument and I picked the alto saxophone. And later with my younger brother, he came along and decided on drums. That's Tootie. Yeah. What was it about the sax? Well, the saxophone was uh, fascinating to me because uh, we had all of these records in our home, jazz records, and I liked what I heard from Benny Carter and Johnny Hodges, and that captured me, and I said, well, that's what I want to play, is this alto saxophone. Johnny Hodges was a beautiful player. I'm, I'm curious about something you said about Johnny Hodges, that he was like a vocalist. Well, Johnny Hodges was a singer on saxophone. He uh, played a song just like a vocalist. His breath control and his sound was captivating. And Benny Carter 
was uh, a person of technical expertise in a certain way, and he could do everything. He could write music, he, could, he had bands, and he played great saxophone, trumpet, and he was a versatile person. I read that what you do when you look at a song is that you really study the lyrics of something that you're going to play. Well, I learned that later. At first, I didn't. And usually, we are so wrapped up in the technique of the instrument and how to produce sounds that are musical. But later on, you find that the people who sang, like a singer, Ben Webster on tenor and Johnny Hodges, communicated with an audience better. And that's when I started to pay attention to the lyric. About when was this? That wasn't in the early beginning as a saxophone player. You know, it had to be, oh, I was playing probably 10 or 15 years before I really realized I got to try to make the horn sing. Your earliest gigs, recordings were with Howard McGee. Yes. What was that experience like for you? Well, Howard McGee, uh, a trumpeter, had uh, a band, and uh, he's uh, probably, he and Milt Jackson are the people who began to call me Little Bird, because by that time, I was listening to Charlie Parker, and his technique and facility really blew my mind. And I was trying to play like him, and Howard had performed with Charlie Parker, and when he took me in his group, well, he took me to Paris in 1948. That was the first jazz festival ever. Yes, it was. Uh, the one they, that they credit as being the first is 49. I think that's the they one. They missed a year. That was the one Charlie Parker and uh, Miles. and. But the one with uh, that I went on in 48 was um, with the Grand Coleman Hawkins, as he was called in Paris. I was with Howard McGee's Sextet de Bebop, they call us. And the other group that would completely overwhelm the French was the Slam Stewart Trio with John Collins on guitar and Errol Garner on piano. And Errol Garner, he just took the French by storm. But I'm a young person, had never been out of the country, and Howard takes me on this uh, tour to Paris. And I had never flown, but my brother Percy was in that group. And he had just come out of the being a Tuskegee Airman. And he uh, consoled me on this flight all the way to Paris. It took 17 hours. How did you first get to play with Dizzy Gillespie? We followed the Dizzy Gillespie band around, me and my brother Percy. Everywhere they would play in the East, if they're playing in Delaware, New York, or Philadelphia, we were so enamored of bebop and what it had, this new music. We would put on our artist bow ties and our berets like Dizzy and copy their costume, and we would go see them, and I wanted to be in that band so much. And uh, eventually I got in the band. But Dizzy would recognize us down front and say, oh, there's the Heath brothers from Philadelphia, because we would be following the band. 
just as fans of the music. And eventually, uh, I started a band in Philadelphia. And my band was patterned after Dizzy's band. And later on, I would consider now that I had a feeder band into the Dizzy Gillespie band because uh, Coltrane was in my band, Benny Golson was in my band, Nelson Boyd was there, Specs Wright, the drummer that I had. And we all went into Dizzy's band. What did you learn from Dizzy Gillespie? Dizzy Gillespie, to me, is the master teacher that I had a relationship with from the time I first got in his band until the time he passed away. I was completely in awe of the way he wrote music himself for a big band. Whenever you were in Dizzy's presence, he was always showing you something. If it's something rhythmically from the Afro-Cuban slant of music or harmonically at the piano, he was a teacher. And everybody that played with Dizzy learned from him. And that was a lot of people. I mean, he just exude music all the time, every time you were in his company. Oh, that's a so-and-so, that this is a minor, this is a minor, flat five, this is a so-and-so. And he was always teaching. Did Dizzy help you with your composing? Oh, yeah. It was like being in the, in the Dizzy Gillespie University. What was it like having John Coltrane in your band? Well, Coltrane had just gotten out of the Navy, and uh, a trumpet player by the name of Bill Massey, who was playing with me, introduced me to train. He says, uh, we just got out, of, both of us just got out of the Great Lakes Navy band or something. And I said uh, to John, I said, man, you know, I got a band. I said, would you be interested in playing alto? Because we both were playing alto saxophones. He said, yes. And he, that was it. We were both the same age, one month different in age, trained September 23rd, me October the 25th of 1926. We both were playing alto saxophones. I just had the band, and he was interested in playing in the band. So we became, you know, close friends in a lot of ways, some unsavory ways with uh, narcotics and stuff. Yeah, he had issues too. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he was not the cold train that you think of. He was learning the same as I was. You know, we learned together. We used to go to the uh, museum in Philly and listen to Stravinsky and Western classical music together. And, and we were studying uh, Charlie Parker's solos written out and all that kind of stuff. So we were just buddies, hang out with girls and all kinds of closeness. Dexter Gordon had a big impact on you, didn't he? Well, Dexter Gordon had an impact on all of us uh, when we wanted to play the tenor saxophone because he and Sonny Stitt were the promulgators of the bebop style on the tenor saxophone. So being the tenor being the fourth instrument hired, it was kind of economical reasons and also musical reasons. After World War II, around Philadelphia, you, they, people in the 
taverns or bars or the clubs, they call them, would hire a trio. The fourth instrument usually was a tenor saxophone. So trying to escape the hold on you that Charlie Parker had, you say, well, maybe I'll get the tenor. Maybe I can get my own identity. As long as you played alto and you were playing in the bebop style, everybody said, well, he's playing all the Charlie Parker stuff. But they, they were, too, but it was on a tenor. Charlie Parker was super influential. Do you remember the first time you heard him? Mm-hmm. I went to the um, Academy of Music in Philadelphia, and, and Dizzy and Charlie Parker came there. They were on a concert, and I had already gotten their records when I was on the road in a band called Nat Tolls in 1945, I think, Right out of high school, I went on the road with a band. And I had heard when Dizzy and and Bird put out, so when they came to Philly, this was around, I guess it was around 47 or 48. I heard them in live performance. And that was the the first time that I heard I had all the records that had come out to that time. And we were all in awe of Charlie Parker's incredible technique and skills as a saxophonist and a performer. So when, when we heard them, in fact, that day, I had a friend that gave me a ticket, and I was sitting downstairs in the Academy of Music in Philadelphia, and Coltrane, I heard later, Coltrane and Benny Golson were together up in the balcony in that same concert, because we all were in love with them. But Benny uh, actually started tenor before Train and I did. When did you start composing, Jimmy? I started composing um, probably, I learned about composition from when I was with Nat Toll's orchestra out in Omaha, Nebraska. We went all over, we toured as a, a dance band. But I was taking uh, close observance to the arrangements that were in that band from a, a few people that were writing, like uh, Wild Bill Davis, the organ player had written an arrangement for Nat Tolles. Nat Tolles, T-O-W-L-E-S, uh, had Sir Charles Thompson, another pianist who went with uh, Coleman Hawkins and, and J.J. and people like that. He was writing for that band. So the people who had been in the band before me had written some great uh, arrangements. And I would start copying things and asking people in a very primitive way, what note did you play on that chord I like? And then what note did you end the band? And I would put it all together and figure out what chords they were. formal training as an arranger. That came way later. But I I was able to put a few things together when I had that band in 1947, 6 and 7, maybe. 
2748. You know, that's a criticism people have of you. You don't play your own stuff enough. That's Who said that? <laughs> Gary Giddens, for one. <laughs> well, you know. Your own work is beautiful. But, you know, only one tune I get uh, criticized for not playing it. And, and that was from another musician. And that was from Art Taylor. He had a group called Taylor's Wailers. And he used to use my song, CTA, as a theme song. <laughs> he said, man, you dumb so-and-so. You don't even play your own song. You see? <laughs> He's the only one. But everybody else I play, every gig I play on, I play my own songs. You're a very modest man. I don't know what I mean. I've written, yeah, probably 140 or 50 songs. And some of them I haven't played in a long time. It might be time to have a think about bringing them back. Well, you know, every recording I've made, I've had three or four or five of my songs on them. If that's not enough, I mean, music is, to me, is very, very different in that no one instrument. I am a person who likes the sound of a lot of different instruments. What my problem, I think, has been that I didn't play the saxophone alone as a quartet over and over and over on recordings. I only made probably three quartet records. Yeah. Okay? I like the whole group. I like a sextet. I had a tentet. I like the big band. I like French horns. I like cellos. I had cello on, on a couple of my records. You know, I like other instruments. I'm not an egomaniac. I call them ego Stravinsky's. <laughs> because they're only them. I'm not the only voice. I'm too democratic, maybe, to, to have a, a bigger name in the music world. When I grew up and I used to go hear the big bands, the big band fascinated me. The big band is actually jazz's symphony orchestra. We have the most possibilities of sound. We can have a duet in the big band. We can have Duke, he had the sextet with the clarinet, trombone, trumpet and he made Mood Indigo and things, and then he'd have, but the big band, you can't do that with a small group. You can't get that full democratic sound. I guess I'm an advocate of democracy in everything, in life, in music, and everybody has a say. And if I like a, a cello on my record, I may give the cello a solo for the Chrono String Quartet. Orin got me this deal. You're talking about producer Orin Keepnews, who's also a 2011 jazz master. Yes. He said, man, they want something to play for their encores in a jazz tradition. So they, they want to know if you could uh, write a string quartet, or would you transcribe something from Coltrane? And I did that, transcribed. And what I did, was to give part of the solo to the second violin. They don't do that. The first violinist gets all the solos and the rest of them accompany him. And that's not d democracy for me. Why can't the second violinist play some of the solo? Neither one of them could improvise. And this was Coltrane's written out solo. You understand? 
Well, why couldn't the second violin have a little bit of taste of it? Unless you're an improvisational person, then you, you got your own band, you take the most solos. I did not like going to see a group and the saxophone player is his group. He plays, he plays the melody and starts the song. He plays the first solo on every song. And then he lets the piano player and the bass player play. Then they play fours and trade. And they come back, play the next song. The saxophone player plays the melody and he plays the first solo. I didn't like that. Why can't the piano play the first solo and you play the second solo? So people like to see a person who that one person and it's, they got this uh, star syndrome, which I hate. stars on earth, stars are in the sky, and when one falls, it burns up. I just believe in equality. What's wrong with that? Why can't we come to that? Now, did Dizzy have that in his band? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I always remember the first time Dizzy really heard John play when we were in the band, and we both were playing alto saxophone. And we had a song written by Linton Garner, who's Errol Garner's brother. But he could write arrangements. It's called Minor, Minor Walk. I used to get a solo on Cool Breeze, Tad Dameron piece. And Train had this solo on uh, Minor Walk. And Dizzy realized how great Coltrane sounded. And it was one of the times he uh, turned around, he was facing the audience, and Train got into such a, a good groove that he turned around and said some, <laughs> some profanity. Play, MF, <laughs> you know? Because he realized that Coltrane was a talent. But before that, we all take a little short solo. He had the solos out front, so he was another one. I mean, that's, that's how you get a reputation. But what about Duke Ellington? But Duke Ellington had a band, see, and that's what I liked. And he had people playing solo, Johnny Hodges, and he had Ben Webster, he had Harry Carney. Paul Gonzalez. Paul Gonzalez came after Ben Webster. Yeah. Because Paul Gonzalez actually was with Dizzy when we were, me and Coltrane was playing altos. He was playing the tenor. And he used to charm all the ladies, and we didn't get any response after the gig. Everybody, oh, where's Paul? Where's Paul? So that's another reason to change the tenor. <laughs> but uh, I just like music so much, and I like the different sounds of music. You know, I love the saxophone, and I get a kick out of playing the saxophone. That's my favorite. But it's not the only instrument in the band. Well, you wrote two string quartets. Yeah, I like that. I wrote one symphonic work, and I wrote uh, a lot of extended works. I wrote a piece for Lincoln Center when they opened the 
the new building where we're playing. Uh, the Jazz at Lincoln Center? Yeah. yeah. I wrote a piece called Passion or Fashion, and uh, it encompassed, I found out later after I'd written, I had to change a lot of things around, one of uh, Lyndon Johnson's speeches, and uh, Glenn Close narrated it that night in the opening concert. I really liked what she did with it, and people liked it too. We went and had commissioned four or five people. The, the, the concert was called Let Freedom Swing. And uh, when somebody wrote one about uh, Malcolm X, someone wrote about uh, uh, Lyndon, somebody, Eleanor Roosevelt, somebody, you know, it was about... Dr. King, I'm sure. Yeah. That was a, a great night for me. I mean, but the, the first extended piece that I wrote that uh, was called... Uh, the Afro-American Suite of Evolution. And I studied two years from teacher who taught at Carnegie Hall, upstairs in the back, his office, named Rudolf Schramm from Leipzig, Germany, who taught the Schillinger system at NYU for 20 years or so. He taught U.B. Blake and uh, Eddie Bearfield and Mercer Ellington and a lot of people. Uh, Professor Sram taught, including me, because I wanted to learn how to write ragtime. I wanted to learn how to write for strings. I wanted to include all of this in this evolution suite that I wrote. You know, I liked doing it, and so since that time, I've written the Upper Neighbors Suite for Canada, and you know, a lot of different ones. I wrote one, another one for Lincoln Center for Joe Henderson called uh, In Praise. Right now I'm involved in writing a commission for the August Wilson Center in Pittsburgh, and I'm at work on that. So I like to write for all kinds of ensembles. You also, speaking of writing, have mm -hmm. recently written a book. Yes. An autobiography. Right. The title, I Walked with Giants. Yes. Why that title? Because we like we're talking now, all of these people I'm naming, they are people who I associated with in a musical fashion and some of them socially. We performed together. If I, you know, Dizzy was a giant and a teacher. He was a, a role model as an entertainer and, you know, so he's a giant. And everybody recognized them as giants. Coltrane's a giant in our music. He's like uh, Beethoven or Bach is in Western classical music. I'm talking about in African-American classical music. Dr. Billy Taylor or Hank Jones or James Moody. All these people I have played with and they're all my friends and we have done a lot of things musically together. So they're giants and it's a kind of a another reason I would say that, which is always a, a humorous reason. I'm a little guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm five foot three. <laughs> and those guys, some of them were giants <laughs> physically. Randy Weston. Oh. He's big. <laughs> yeah, Dexter's six five or something, you know what I mean? So it's, a, it's a, some humor in that title, but not really 
the main focus of the title is the giants of music. I liked the way the book was put together, Jimmy. It's almost like a call and response. Mm -hmm. You jazz. write. Yeah, it is. It's like jazz, the way you have different voices coming in mm -hmm. all the time. It's exactly what you were talking about with not just liking the saxophone, but wanting other voices. You did that in your autobiography, mm -hmm. too. That's me. That's, that's the way I feel, that everybody should have their say. I'm a very democratic person in that. When I have my big band gigs, I got saxophone players, and it's always, uh, I don't want all the five saxophone players and just play my notes that I wrote. No, they all gotta have a solo. Everybody in the band that can solo should be able to solo. And that's not the way it's looked at by this star syndrome that America has, everybody. Hollywood, I think that began in Hollywood. I may be wrong. Stars. But there are no stars. They're just people who are extremely talented in whatever field they're in. But you got to find another word than star. The English language got a lot of adjectives they can use besides star. <laughs> Final question. Yes. Who haven't you played with that you wish you could have played with? Duke Ellington, Count Basie. Only I've been on the stage and, and played before Basie came up, but not in his organization. I wish I could have played in that band. And if I could go back further than that, I wish I had been around to play in Jimmy Lunsford's band. I found that Jimmy Lunsford's band had so many talented arrangers at the time when Gerald Wilson was in there as a young kid writing music. There were, he had so many arrangers, and there was a, such a variety of good music coming out of that band. But every big band I used to go see, the one that fascinated me was uh, Glenn Miller. I went to see Glenn Miller at the Earl Theater in Philadelphia. And when they put the... <laughs> the blue lights on the saxophone section. And they were played Serenade in Blue. I could have cried. <laughs> I said, oh my God, I want to be up there like those people. That music sounds so, it captured me. I, I got the record, I still got it. Serenade in Blue by Glenn Miller. I'm in love with music in all of its phases. I really love music. That was saxophonist, composer, arranger, and 2011 jazz master Jimmy Heath. If you love jazz, then mark your calendar for January 10th, when the NEA Jazz Masters Concert and Awards Ceremony takes place at Jazz at Lincoln Center. The event begins at 7.30 p.m. We're webcasting it live. Go to arts.gov and click on Jazz Masters for more information about this free event and the live webcast. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Jimmy Heath, leading and playing with the Berklee Concert Jazz Orchestra, live in concert, used courtesy of Berklee College of Music. Excerpts from Heritage Hum, Gemini, and One for One. From Turn Up the Heath, performed by the Jimmy Heath Big Band, used courtesy of Planet Arts Recording. All the music we heard was written by Jimmy Heath. The Artworks Podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. 
And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, Tim O'Brien, author of the Big Read selection, The Things They Carried. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.